Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Well, we're going to deal with the anger of Christ today. We shouldn't be surprised to, to learn that Jesus gets angry. I mean, he, he shows us a full range of emotion. In, in his case, though, it's always pure emotion. So the anger we're going to deal with today is different than, let's say, anger that I might experience. And, and you do know pastors get angry, right? It's a fact. On the Friday, I got angry at one of you, actually. A member of our church called me as I was driving along. I was headed down Brundage, and phone rang, and so I pulled in to a lot there, and uh, I happened to pull into the lot for a Der Wiener Schnitzel. And so I got on the I got on the uh, phone, and I told this person, this member of our church, I said, "I'm mad at you. You need to know I'm I'm really mad at you." And she said, "How come?" And she was scared. And I said, because this is my fast day, and to answer your phone call, I had to pull into Schnitzel. I said, do you have any idea how many chili dogs and kraut dogs are in that place? It's hundreds, that's how many. But we're talking about a different kind of anger when we talk about Jesus here. Anybody like being on the spot? No. Questions put us on the spot, don't they? Direct questions, indirect questions can do that. I've recently found out that Jesus asks 237 questions. If you count them up in the Gospels, there are 237 questions that he asks. Next week, we're going to begin talking about some of those. One of the, one of the questions that we'll deal with in some detail was an indirect question, and we'll recognize it here in this election year as a poll question. He asked his followers, he said, who do people say that I am? Kind of like the electioneers polling us. Who do people say that I am? That was his indirect question, but he had a follow-up direct question. Who do you say that I am? whole lot more bite to that one. Who do you say that I am? Now, opinions are important, and what we say about the things of God, that's important. But a much greater importance is what does Jesus know about Himself? What questions does He put to Himself, and what answer does He come up with? With a question like that, who do you say that I am? Who does He know himself to be. It's not only a much more important question, what Jesus has to say about himself is a much more interesting question. And he has plenty to say about himself. Today we're wrapping up a series on the seven churches in the book of Revelation. I encourage you to turn to Revelation 3 as we wrap this up. We've been looking at some letters that were sent to Seven ancient churches, churches now all dead, long dead, long out of business. And this long dead church has something to say to us today as well as all the others did. It's in Revelation 3, we'll begin at verse 14. 
And in this letter that we will read that Jesus sends to the church at Laodicea, Jesus gets His word in first, His opinion about Himself. That's what it opens with. Who does He say He is? Take a look in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this, the Amen. Here's what He says about Himself now. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this. That's how Jesus describes Himself. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. That's who Jesus says He is. And He's talking to us about a very real presence when He describes Himself that way. He says He is the Amen. That word in Hebrew means truly. That's why we end our prayers with truly. That's what I really mean. May it really be so. That's the amen, truly. It's also why Jesus would begin sometimes some of His best work by saying the word amen not once but twice. Amen, amen, I say unto you, truly, truly, I say unto you. In Hebrew, it's the word truly, amen. And Jesus calls Himself the amen. That means that He Himself, Jesus, is the great response to God's promises. He's the greatest of response to the promises of God. In other words, He guarantees the truth of God's promises. Paul had something to say about it way back in his letter to 2 Corinthians when he says, for as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes, therefore also through Him He is our Amen. Jesus is the amen because he is the great response. He is the guarantor of the promises, the truth of God's promises, you see. That's how he describes himself. But he also says, you need to know this about me. Here's what I think about myself, that I am the faithful witness. I am the faithful witness. He is, he is the faithful witness to the Father. He is the faithful witness to what the Father is like. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. And when we look at Jesus to get a picture of what God is really like, it it, it dispels all of the myths that we can have about Him. We can have the myth that God is angry with me. No, He's not. Look at Jesus. We can have the idea that that God is a great big Santa Claus or He's a, a doting old pushover. No, He's not. Look at Jesus. That's what He's like. He's a witness to the Father. He's the faithful witness. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses say that they are the faithful witness to God. So maybe somebody should call the Watchtower headquarters this week and and let them know that. Uh, Maybe, Mo, you should give them a call back there in beautiful bucolic Brooklyn and tell them, oh, you've got it all wrong. You're not the faithful witness. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. You see, he's the faithful witness. When people say things like that, I I find that offensive. I find it stupid. I find it dangerous. I find it very dangerous. I find it very dangerous. But Jesus is the faithful witness. He's a faithful witness to the Father. He's a faithful witness to his own nature as the unique and one and only Son of God. Now, we're all sons and daughters of God, of course, but He's in a league of His own, and He witnesses to that. He is the witness that He'll never fail to be faithful 
He's the faithful witness, you see. We can count on Jesus. The song says, friends may fail me and foes assail me, but he, my Savior, makes me whole. We can count on him. He's the faithful witness. He's the witness that will never leave us. But he's also the beginning. Do you see that? The beginning of the creation of God. That's how he describes himself. He's the origin. He's he's the first cause. That's what the philosophers would call him. They would say he is the beginning. He is the first cause. He's the start of everything. And he is. He is. And he's more than that. He's the beginning. And that means that, that he is the starting point. Not that he is the first creation, but he's the beginning point. He's the starting point of creation. He was not created, you see. He always was and always, always, always will be. He always will be. First chapter of John, it says that the world was made through him and the world was made by him. And now we're told, Paul in Ephesians has even more about that to say to us. He tells us that That now, not only is the world made through Him, and not only is the world made by Him, but it goes way beyond that. He talks about Christ. And when He was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the heavenly place, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, Jesus is above it all. He's before it all. He's the beginning of it all. He's the origin of it all. You see, everything started with Him. And it's through Him that everything in God's plan will one day be brought to a final glorious conclusion. And that's the rest of the book of Revelation, isn't it? That He's the beginning and one day everything will be finished by Him as well. So when Jesus describes himself, you see a real presence there. He's the amen. He's the faithful witness. He's the beginning. But in this passage, there's also a real horror. And I've got to tell you that it's because of these next few verses that I've struggled this week with this Laodicean church. I know your deeds. This is what Jesus writes to this church. I know your deeds. I know what you do. That you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's Jesus talking. That's a very frightening passage to me. As we look into the rest of this Laodicean male here. That passage scares me. I will spit you out of my mouth. This is not a message that I've enjoyed preparing, and I don't enjoy this part of it now. In fact, I've got to tell you that early in the week as I worked through this, as I got close to these Laodiceans and began to look at what it was that caused Jesus to want to spit them out. Uh, Myself, I got physically sick. I had a headache and I was sick at my stomach and I began to understand why Jesus says what He says. For this church, He has no commendation. For all of the other churches, there's something He sees in them of value, but, but Jesus has nothing good to say about this church. Nothing. And it's tragic beyond words. And the, and the great tragedy of the Laodiceans was this, listen, is they had forgotten. They'd forgotten. 
they'd forgotten he's the amen. They'd forgotten he is the faithful witness. They'd forgotten that he is the beginning. They had forgotten how amazing. They had forgotten how stunning it was to stand in the presence of Jesus Christ. They had forgotten who Christ is. They'd forgotten who they're dealing with. They'd forgotten. Now I'm sure that when they began their walk with Christ, they had started very eager. They had been on fire. They had been zealous about serving the lost. They had been zealous about serving the poor. But all of that is gone now. They'd been zealous for God, but now their faith is bland. It's, it's blah. There's nothing about Christ that excites them anymore. It is tasteless. As I said, there's nothing about serving the poor or reaching the lost that thrills them. They have no ministry goals. Their worship and everything that goes with it, they, it's on a take-it-or-leave-it basis with them. They've got no compelling reasons to pray late into the night anymore. There's no urgency to tell that lost friend that faces a Christless eternity. Listen, faces a Christless eternity, and they have no reason to tell them anymore that Jesus is the only hope they have. They've lost it all. They've forgotten it all. They used to tell with excitement how Christ can change everything. I'm sure they did once, but not today. And there's no flavor in their faith. And because it is tasteless and unremarkable, Jesus says he will spit them out of his mouth. And the horror of that is multiplied because it seems that nothing will shake them, not even this warning will shake them out of their death spiral. Because you say, that is the offending phrase. Do you see it in verse 17? Because you say, I am rich. And because you say, I have become wealthy. And because you say, I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Because you say, that's the phrase that offends Christ. That's what causes them to be condemned here. They're saying, I don't need anything. I don't need any more of Christ than I've already got. I am satisfied because they say that. Make no mistake. And don't misunderstand me about these people. They did not oppose Christ. They weren't hostile toward Christ. Jesus Christ. But he is disturbed with them. To say he is sickened by them is not too strong. This is something that you need to know about your Savior. And it's this, that he is most disturbed not by rank sinners. He is most disturbed not by the adulterers and those who neglect their children, and the thieves, and the cons, and the liars, and the addicts. Now, we are most disturbed by all of those, but he is not. No, he is most disturbed by people, listen, that he can neither use nor bless because they're self-satisfied. Who put themselves in such a comfort zone that they cannot be used by God, and they do not want to be blessed by God. 
Those are the people that sicken Christ. Their tastelessness, their listlessness, and the lethargy of spirit means that they can't be bothered. Don't bother me. They can't be bothered to be used by God, and their church died as a result of that. Now, you may think that this is ancient history, but just this last week, a sister church of ours closed its doors, closed, out of business. It's as dead as the Laodicean church now. A church that once numbered in hundreds, it went through various transformations and lives, but one by one, the members of that church could no longer be bothered, and their commitment grew thin to the breaking point. And finally, the fabric of that church, it punched through, and the pastor gave up and shut it down. Now, that's not first century. That's six days ago. They would not be used by God. The Laodiceans are here. They, they are convinced that they need nothing, and so they can't be blessed by God. No doubt they found great comfort in the fact, hey, we don't oppose God. We're not against God. We're on God's side. But they did not draw near to Him either, you see. This church... It refused to its dying day to put themselves in a place where Jesus could speak deeply to them. That was off limits. They, to their dying day, they, they refused to be in a place where they could have experiences in the Spirit. In fact, from those kind of experiences, they would run like the wind and, and times of extraordinary prayer, they wouldn't have anything to do that with that. And, and the, the closet closeness with the Holy Spirit and fasting and the brokenness that comes when you serve the poor, to all of those things they said, no, no, no. But do you realize that those are the very places, extraordinary prayer, closeness with the Holy Spirit, fasting, being with the poor, those are the very places that Christ can speak deep things into your soul. Lukewarm water. It's not fit for bathing. And it's not refreshing to drink. Lukewarm water is not pleasant and neither are lukewarm people. Jesus Christ says so. Now some things that can afflict a church, like parasites. There are things like false doctrine and false teachers and persecution. These were not the problems of this church here. It wasn't false doctrine. It wasn't persecution. They didn't have those problems. They didn't suffer from those parasites. And in fact, to other churches around them, they were the envy. They were sitting in the catbird seat. They, they said, we are rich and wealthy and we have need of nothing. You know what the problem is? They were self-satisfied. To the point that they don't really need anything from God. So why seek Him? They had lost the burning desire to know God. They'd forgotten what the psalmist said. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. 
says at the end of verse 17 that they're not only self-satisfied, but something else. You do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So they're not only self-satisfied, but they're also self-deceived. Self-deceived. These people are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt. No, no, no. We are spiritual enough. And in their heart of hearts, individuals may have harbored the notion, and I'm more spiritual than others. They needed nothing. I don't need anything more than what I've got now. That was their attitude. No more times of prayer. No more secret moments with the Word. No more fresh baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's certain they did not see themselves, though. Listen, as God saw them, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's a real horror there. But there's a real answer to this church too. Verse 18, verse 19. Look at what it says. I advise you, Jesus still speaking to this group of wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you now to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline therefore be zealous and repent there's his real answer his real answer is number 1 take my advice I advise you take my advice he says it's shocking how few Christians do take the advice of Christ. He's saying, stop the self-satisfied pretense that all is well with you and that you don't need any more of Christ than you now have. In fact, he says, get rid of it all and buy real gold. Real gold. What is that real gold he's talking about? It's something that you... You, you, it's, it's bought from Jesus. And it's more precious than the gold we know. What is it? Envelope, please. And here it is. It's faith. The Bible says it's faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire. So what is that real gold that we get only from Christ? It's a faith that is tested and refined. Be rich in that, he says. And then he says something else. From Christ, get a white garment. Get a right white garment. Cover that nakedness with a righteousness not your own. When we see that word righteousness in our day, we probably should shorten it, and it would be more meaningful if we called it what it really is. Get, get a white garment from Christ and cover that nakedness with a rightness not your own. Not self-rightness but a rightness that's been bought with the blood of Christ. Cover yourself with that. You're never going to be right enough on your own. Wrap yourself in Christ's rightness. And then he says, from me, by spiritual ointments. And what's that for? Well, that's needed to correct our vision so we can see Christ as He really is. 
so that we don't see him as a perversion, so that we don't see a, a doctored version, so that we don't see a tame version of Jesus. He wants us to see him for all he really is and to be able to see his moving, the moving of his spirit all around us. We miss it all of the time. We need our eyes to be healed and adjusted so that we can have a clear vision of heaven, our home, and, and, and we too can see ourselves as we really are and not as we strut and pretend to be. He says, buy that from me so that you can see reality. Take my advice. That's his answer. Take my advice. And then he says, take my challenge. That's what he means when he says, be zealous. No more hot, no more cold. Be zealous. Be zealous. What's a... What's a zealot? Well, a zealot is somebody who is serious. The terrorists that would slit our throats and disrupt all of our lives. We don't like what they do. We don't like what they stand for, but they are zealots. They're serious. A zealot is serious. A zealot is fervent. A zealot for Christ is somebody who will burn with zeal in your pursuit of Christ. In other words, run hard after the things of God. That's what he's telling us here. That's what he's telling us. Take my challenge. And then finally, he says one more thing. He says, take my heart. Take my heart. This is the thing that David, the singing king of Israel, the the poet ruler of Israel, late in his life, he was thunderstruck to see this. He, 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 he is thrown back on God, and, and God has shown him something, and it's this, but he realizes that too late in his life, a broken and contrite heart, he says, you don't despise that, do you? What's Jesus saying to us? What's he saying to the Laodiceans? And what do they pass on to us? Well, he's saying, take my advice. He's saying, take my challenge. But he's saying, take my heart. Take my heart. That's what he means when he says repent. Because that is how we capture the heart of Christ. When we're going in the wrong direction, when we're going in a direction that takes us away from Him, and we course correct, and we turn, we repent, and we come back toward Him, that's how we capture the heart of Christ. And He's saying here, repent. He's saying, take my heart. Turn to show that you mean business. I feel sorry for Jesus sometimes. Because all day long, for centuries now, he has to hear words, 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 promises, promises, promises. Deals, deals, deals. So often he must hear just words. The Old Testament had a descriptive word for what he must suffer through. Lip service. Serving him with our lips only is no kind of service. Lip service, words. But when we turn, when we come back toward Him, it's showing Him that we mean business. How else will He know we mean business? Because everybody talks. So out of this, I get this. Don't tell Christ. Show Christ. Turn and win His heart. And then verse 20. 
We've seen a, a real answer here. We've seen a real horror. We've seen a real presence. And now we're going to get a picture of real desire. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. <laughs> Imagine that. The God of the universe, polite enough to knock. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, I can't go any further. <laughs> if anyone, there, there, is a, there is a sad hopefulness to that word anyone, isn't there? If anyone. Here's my voice and opens the door. So he's knocking and he's crying out. Opens the door, I will come in and I will dine with him and he with me. Well, there's Christ's real desire, isn't it? Do you see that his real desire isn't to spit us out of his mouth? But his real desire, his heart's desire, the thing he longs to do is to sit down and eat together with us. To those who say God is angry, a long time ago some Christians developed a question and answer way of learning the faith. It's called a catechism. And in one of the old catechisms, the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, why did God create people? Why? Mark Twain says that God created man because he was disappointed in the monkey. But I don't think that's it. What is the chief end of man? Why did God make men? And the answer that is given back is to love God. This is why he made us. To love Him and enjoy Him forever. <laughs> so for those who say God is angry, no, He wants to come. His great desire is not to spit us out, not to judge us. His great desire is to sit down with us forever and visit. He's knocking and He's wanting fellowship into our life. He's wanting a degree of closeness that we have never allowed Him he wants to see you steal away from the routine just to waste time with Him. Not for anything special. Just to waste time. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back and help us out as we close out this service. In our Bible reading calendar this last week, and I encourage you to use that thing, use that thing. I reminded you several times last year that we're not always going to be allowed to do what we're doing here today. I'm confident of that, that in the lifetime of some people in this room, and maybe sooner rather than later, we're not going to be allowed to do church like we do it now. And you're going to have to fall back on the Word and you're going to have to fall back on some of these choruses and you're going to have to fall back on knowing how to pray. So I encourage you to read and use that Bible calendar to stay current in the Word every day, every day. But we read together this last week the 42nd Psalm. 
that says, As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. I want us to stand together and sing that psalm. Sing that chorus together. Hallelujah. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.